Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty, we have got a fabulous show today. I am just delighted, but I have to warn our listeners that you might want to fasten your seatbelts because we are talking about weaponized hormones, women warriors, and leadership. My first guest is Mariette Kalinowski. She is a former sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps who served from 2002 to 2010, including two tours of Operation Iraqi freedom. Her experiences as a heavy machine gunner on convoys led her to focus on women's perspectives of combat and war, since involvement in the wars is too often dismissed. She's an advocate for women veterans and participated in the documentary film Service. She earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Literature, cum laude, and her Master of Fine Arts in Fiction, summa cum laude, from Hunter College in 2011 and 2014, respectively. Presently, Mariette serves as the Coordinator for Student Veteran Services at the New School in New York City. Welcome, Mariette. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I am I am really delighted to talk about this subject, and it's really the conversation started for me around um, a short video that some mutual friends of ours produced that you were involved with entitled Soldiers, period. Talk a little bit about that project and um, what it represents to you. Sure. So Soldiers, period, was kind of a reaction piece to uh, the reactions of male special operations and military members when the Secretary of, of Defense in, enforced the, the repeal of the Combat Exclusion Act. So uh, going on a year now, uh, women have been allowed into the, quote, combat arms jobs 
in the in the military and so that was after two years of intense uh, examination and trials of women in um, say infantry training uh, and then it was uh, there there were the famously the women who uh, successfully completed the ranger training so when it became clear that uh, secretary um, oh uh, the, the Secretary of Defense was going to enforce the the inclusion of women in combat. These men made very uh, gender-specific and misogynistic comments about our hormones and our, quote, hygiene or the care of our menstruation in the field and in combat scenarios. And in this um, short, which we are going to p- post, actually, we're gonna we're gonna get it viral through through our network because I I, I absolutely love it. Um, you really depict um, the reality of the situation, which, which is that women make amazing soldiers, that their menstrual cycles, in fact, don't really play any role except for the positive in combat. And um, mm-hmm. I think that that is really uh, the, the point of all of this, that when we weaponize these hormones that we've got, we are more powerful, more stronger, and more effective, not than our ma- male counterpart, not, that, not necessarily more than our ma- male counterparts, but certainly on par, or perhaps right. better. Yeah, it- Exactly. The The film wants to show the absurdity of some of these comments and these ongoing beliefs of women in combat and um, arduous training, because when it comes to our bodily functions, uh, we, we consider them a non-issue. We have, over millennia, figured out how to uh, function in spite of our menstruation, yeah. just like human beings have learn to function in spite of our urination and our defecation and vomiting and all of that. So there's the fact that our bodies are being used against us by people who don't actually understand them and live with these issues is, is it just shows that they're kind of, they're, they're running out of reasons and it just becomes a desperate sounding attempt to maintain uh, something that they're familiar with. And, you know, it, it, this idea of on par with or better with men, it's it's not even that we're trying to negate certain facts. Like, we are biologically different um, men and women. But if you adjust your way of thinking and thus the training that you provide for women, we will be able to do what you need us to do. Not every woman is going to be able to make the grade, but I think that means you you weed out the best candidates who will be able to keep up with the men. Indeed, and I think really the conversation speaks to emotional intelligence. And we and when we look at um, gender differences, we know that women develop a greater sense of emotional intelligence earlier in life. And it is that emotional intelligence that really also extends to social intelligence that enables us to um, public relate, I believe, in a better way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that it goes along with uh, this idea of uh, ma- uh, macho, um, like, dr- drives to society. If you have generations upon generations of a certain approach to war 
meaning more force, more violence. You need to show the so-called enemy that you're boss. That is how you're going to approach uh, the so-called enemy. Whereas if you consider the empathetic approach, there can actually be more communication and thus more compromise. The the U.S. uh, foreign policy has always been a a talk of compromise and diplomacy, but then um, in action that has more to do with force. And so if you actually operate on on what you claim diplomacy, it it would greatly affect our, our relationship with uh, global partners. I, I agree. And really, we're talking about the art of war. And when, when we want to achieve a goal, uh, the best way around it is through understanding the needs of the opponent mm. and then trying to broker um, a, a deal somewhere in the middle. Right. Right. And, and if you do, um, if, if we witness more women coming up through the leadership ranks of the military, that will disrupt the the um, the male driven force driven policies that have been in place for so long that it's almost that that it is second nature so there there can be this disruption of uh, if it ain't broke, why fix it well the, I, I, it's my belief that um, projects like this and um, women coming to the fore in the military really is positive disruption. It, it is going to change the way that the world does business. And I, and, and, and I really value that as a mother, as a woman, um, and seeing mm-hmm. the fallout of what happens to our servicemen and women when they come home. Right. You know, right. Um, which is a whole other conversation and probably another hour. We're going to need to go to a break. Um, but before mm-hmm. we do... I just want to talk a little bit about um, the policy of women on the front lines and handling weaponry and what that looks like in terms of a woman's skill, a woman's um, uh, uh, ability to maintain balance, grounding, and fortitude. Does it differ from a man? No. No, it doesn't. Um, The training that I received uh, when I became a, a machine gunner. I, I was on the Browning uh, M2 50 cal machine gun, and it, it was exactly the same as the men. I was side by side with men when I was learning uh, how to deploy it and uh, use it in various scenarios. Um, the difference was because I was one of only two women in my unit on the, the 50 cal, I felt driven to to perform. I wanted to make sure I learned everything and uh, it practiced it and perfected it to the best of my ability. So the level of competition wasn't there. It was actually a drive to to um, it, it was a drive to not suck essentially. <laughs> and, so oh, that, and I'm sure actually, you you exceeded that. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. I am sure you were a great yeah. shot, and that's a it's probably not a very uh, um, eloquent way of saying that, but I I, I don't right, doubt it because right. we are very um, we're mission driven, right? We want to get it right. We exactly. know we have to perform in 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 a sea of men, right. so we're going to do our best. 
Right. Yeah. It's just I, it, I certainly felt like I had to perform twice as better to be just as good. And so that actually brought out the best in me. Mm. We're going to take a break. And I like what you just said, because I think that is the role of women in the world today. You know, we're, we're working mm-hmm. double or triple time um, to, to be our best. We're going to take a break. And I want to give our listeners some information on how to connect the film is Soldiers, period, and there's some unique ways of connecting with the project and its producers. Um, the Twitter handle is at Soldiers, period. The hashtag is Soldiers, period. And to connect with Marriott Kalinowski directly, please do so at at SkiaTTQ, and I'm going to spell that for you, S-K-I-A-T-T-Q, and we're going to take a break. I promise we will return. We shall be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about weaponizing our hormones, women warriors, and leadership in America and around the world with my guest, Mariette Kalinowski. She is... um, she has served in our military. She is also presently the coordinator for uh, student veteran services at the New School in New York City. She's also a contributor to a couple of films. One is Service, the film, which is um, about women in the military and military sexual trauma. And the other, a more recent project, is entitled Soldiers, Period. It's a, it's a short that is very funny, very powerful, and talks about women's roles in the military. Um, and basically, um, here come the vaginas, so look out. You know, we're really talking about using our power as women and our role in the military to make a difference in a different way. Mariette, prior to the break, we um, were talking about the film Women's Roles, but I want to also just touch upon the soft side of art and how it helps heal and how it is a modality that has been useful not only to you, but other service um, women who have come home. Right. Well, art, um, I think, is garnering a lot of positive uh, support as a transition aid. There's uh, several organizations that have developed 
in an effort to to encourage art as a transition out of the military and uh, and transitioning from trauma in general, regardless of your background. The great thing about art is there's no right or wrong way to do it, so there is no judgment on the expression and the interpretation of the trauma. It also uh, allows enough um, of, of a fiction or a fabrication to come in in order to make the, the actor secure feeling uh, so that they don't feel like they're as vulnerable as, say, in a therapy session or um, just in front of strangers in general. The, the reason why I think that art has come forward is because um, when you speak with a practitioner, uh, whether it's therapy or just research, there can be a lot there, there can be a little bit of a language barrier, just like with military jargon. If you don't have the, the dictionary, you're not necessarily going to understand what is being said. And clinical speech can also feel a little dry, a little impersonal. And so I think that art surfaced as kind of um, a way of saying, that's all great. I understand what you're saying about my brain, about what happened to me. But this is exactly how I feel now. So yeah. I think it's sort of the yin and the yang uh, relationship. And in the short soldiers period, um, there are, I believe there are four women? There, there, or, there, or there are more? Five. Four or well, five so women. It, it's really interesting. It's really interesting because uh, we have the, I believe it's four women on screen but a lot of our quotes on um, that that we utilized and we kept throwing at the camera were contributed by our community online. Ever since service uh, was distributed by Marsha Rock and, and Patricia Stoddard, there has been a huge um, online community buildup around uh, women in the military and military sexual trauma, and it has it's grown beyond our expectations. It's gotten to the point where um, the the original team has outsourced to moderators across the country. So wow. when we first came up with the concept of Soldiers Period, we actually reached out to our community and said, what do you want to say? Just, you know, we don't have the authority on all of your experiences, so please chime in. And they did. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And so it wasn't just a small crew, definitely. But the the um, one that particularly one of the the comments or the vignettes that sticks out in my mind is an approach to dealing with ISIS that is actually quite brilliant, <laughs> and it, it allows me to believe that if we had women um, in the front lines in dealing with the Muslim world, that it would actually just end the situation right there. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, the, the suggestion, I, I think the quote goes, look out, ISIS, here I come. I'm going to, like, destroy you with my vagina. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that, I mean, that was definitely tongue-in-cheek. I mean, of course, we are not suggesting that women should 
you approach ISIS without their pants. Uh, (laughs) No, but the concept of, you know, um, naked women uh, going after these uh, fanatics, these radicals, probably does make good sense. They wouldn't know what to do. They wouldn't know how to handle the enemy. Exactly, exactly. But it was that was directed more, I think, at um, the Western or or American men who have this entrenched idea that women have nothing to offer or are simply um, going to uh, in negatively impact the morale, the cohesion, the so-called it will undermine the morale and cohesion of a unit. Um, it's it, there is such a male focus on the female genitalia that it's almost uh, it's it's like a some they're fascinated by it and so the fact that you think we would use our genitalia and our reproductive systems as a weapon means that you are not looking at the whole of us no. so it's yes. um yeah well, and it is actually, in my experience in working with men and women who have served, um, in talking with many women, a lot have had a good experience. Not everybody is traumatized uh, mm-hmm. uh, sexually when they go off to war. In fact, it's it happens. It, there's a lot of it. But there are women that are coming home and sharing amazing uh, stories as well. Right. Yeah. And I I do not in any way say that my entire time in the Marine Corps was negative or traumatizing. In fact, I have, thankfully, a majority of positive experiences with working with men. And most of them were respectful. Most of them were considerate. And um, most of them presented me with challenges and let me perform as I was able to. Uh, The 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 idea that being a woman in the military would be just completely traumatizing and debilitating is a false one. It's, yeah. uh, it's because of the, the high-profile uh, interviews and, and reports on military sexual trauma. There's always going to be friction between the sexes. It's just when you have 18- and 19-year-olds, with raging hormones and you put them in a close proximity and then you put them in a high stress environment, there's always going to be sexual friction. Yes. But at the same time, they can, they still do their job. And, um, it's, I think that the increase in positive, stories coming from women veterans is also because the generations have started to turn over in the military. We've been in this current conflict for 15 years, which means the average uh, contract of a military member is six to eight years, which means there has been pretty much an entire turnover of military members, which means the, uh, there is new thoughts, there's new habits that are coming in, and new perspectives. So I, I'm optimistic about it. I, I am too. And, and, I, and I have, um, as I mentioned to you before we started talking, I have a daughter who is 19, and I look at her and her peers and the way that they are in the world. 
is much more gender neutral in the way they relate to one another. They're just just people. It's not necessarily, uh, I'm a man, you're a woman, the way they relate, the way they they, um, interact, they respect one another. And I do see this as a a changing trend culturally uh, amongst Mm -hmm. people that I see. And I don't think that it is across the board. I still think that you've got the old guard in many ways that um, need need a re-education. But that that's our job. Right. I mean, that's what we do with using our voices. Right. And I've I've written about it um, in uh, the New York Times, where I think that as the generation, the older generations of leaders age out, the ones from um, the first Gulf War, from the interwar period uh, between Vietnam and the start of the first Gulf War, when they start aging out, and create room for the younger leaders to move up, we see a progression of, quote, progressive policy changes in the military. Um, so the ideas of race, of, of homosexuality, and of gender in the military are going to see a complete change. In 20 or 30 years, the military is going to look back on this time period and say, why didn't you just do away with it? We clearly haven't been negatively affected. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's because of generational change and just uh, in general social um, redefinitions. I'm I am convinced that the gradual ch- uh, change of opinion in this country when it comes to homosexuality and same-sex couples, and then the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" um, earlier uh, in this decade was what led to the abolition of the Combat Exclusion Act. Uh, We cannot deny that that opinions about homosexuality led to a change in opinions on gender. Well, we probably need to do two more shows together. One, definitely on military (laughs) sexual trauma, and then the other on, you know, don't ask, don't tell, and and on homosexuality, because at the end of the day, (laughs) and this is how I see it from the the, the perspective of a, a positive psychology um, person is that at the end of the day, it's about love. It's about connection, about being able to exactly. express that in a way that makes you happy and fulfilled and contented. And who exactly. cares? And if, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, the, the idea of there's no atheists in, in foxholes um, kind of, it's it's like it, it was extended to I don't want a gay person in a foxhole with me. It's like really, <laughs> if you're both pointing the weapon in the same direction, it doesn't matter. It does <laughs> yeah. not matter. So it I, does I'm not matter. You. And and well, yeah. at the end of the day, uh, you know, we humans we love to think of ourselves as so individualistic. And yes, that's true. We are individuals. We have uh, different desires and dreams, but our needs. You know, to feel safe, Mm -hmm. to feel protected, loved, heard, understood are the same, Mm -hmm. no matter where in the world or what side of the the line you're standing on. Exactly. And it's it's also um, an idea of individual respect. If you don't want me to encroach on you, then please do not encroach on me. Agreed. And we're going to have to end on that note, which means you'll just have to come back and carry on this conversation, which actually makes me very happy. So I hope you will join me. I want to give the contact information for um, Soldiers Period 
Uh, once again, that Twitter handle is at soldiers period. The hashtag is soldiers period. The film is available on Vimeo, but we are also going to um, make sure that we get the link out within our social media. We'll send it out in our newsletter and we will make it known to connect with Mariette Kalinowski directly. Please go to Twitter at S-K-I-A-T-T-Q. Once again, S-K-I-A-T-T-Q. Mariette, thank you so much for sharing your time with me and, and this amazing project. It's a lot of fun and has a lot of heart and a lot of meaning. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me on. Okay, here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation uh, about supporting our military, specifically women and their needs and how they are unique to their male counterparts. We're talking with retired Colonel Elspeth Cameron Ritchie, retired from the Army in 2010 after a distinguished career culminating with a position as the Army's top psychiatrist. She has written and lectured extensively on military, mental health, and women's mental health issues. She is now the acting chief of staff for mental health and chief of mental health for community-based clinics in the Washington, D.C. area. She serves uh, frequently uh, as an expert talking about subject matters related to military and veterans' mental health issues. And today we're focusing on the holistic view, the mind, body, spirit, and emotional health of our warriors. Welcome, Dr. Ritchie. Thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Uh, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that in the U.S. military, Women make up only about 50% of the military. Women make up about 15, 1-5% of the military. It's a little higher in the Air Force and a little lower in the Marines. That number has been fairly consistent for a while. And women have recently been allowed to serve in combat roles. For a long time, they were in combat. That's a, a belief that some people have that women were not in combat. That's not true. They have been. I was in combat in Somalia and Iraq. However, recently, 
all the combat, what are called MOS, military occupational specialty, have been open to women, and that includes jobs like engineers, infantry, and the special forces. And, and tell us a little bit about your own service in combat, because this is unique to many of our listeners. I am a psychiatrist, and I was a soldier for many years, and I deployed to a number of different places to provide mental health care, either with a combat stress control group or with a hospital, often called a CASH, that's Combat Support Hospital. So I was in Somalia in the early days of Operation Restore Hope. I was stationed twice in Korea, which wasn't a combat setting, but we spent a lot of time deployed in the field. And believe me, Korea in the winter is cold and in the summer Mm -hmm. it's hot and it feels pretty primitive. And then I was in Iraq three times for various missions. Wow. Thank you for your service. That's that's a a large amount of your life that's been devoted to serving the country and serving others. Um, Let let me ask you a couple of questions that are particular to um, servicemen and women returning, um, trying to reintegrate into civilian life. Talk a little bit about the challenges both for mental health and general total health that one would experience. So coming back to civilian society, what we call reintegration, is a challenge. And it's been a challenge for many different conflicts and many different wars. The good news is the military, and I was in the Army but know all the military pretty well, the good news is the military takes that very seriously and tries to do its best to prepare its service members by service members, soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, and don't forget the Coast Guard that often serve in difficult and remote locations. But even though they try to prepare, it can be very hard to come from being abroad in combat, being subject to firefights, a completely different culture for a year or 15 months to come back to the United States, the civilian society, what I often see is people who can't go to malls, they drive very fast and erratically because they're used to having to get away from an improvised explosive device, and they have problems reconnecting with their families or friends back home, especially those who haven't been over there and done that. In many cases, they've been part of a small band of men and women who have been together for a long time, very intense experiences, and how do you prepare for that? Personally, I remember coming back from Iraq one time and going to spend Thanksgiving at my brother's house, and his niece is very nice. The excitement around the table was about going to malls and the, the shopping and the sales there, and it was like I just couldn't relate. And so it's very important when somebody comes back for them to continue to outreach to other folks who have been there. Now, for your active duty military who are coming back to Fort Hood or Fort Bragg, that's usually pretty easy. But if you're a reservist and maybe come back to a place where nobody else wears a uniform, that might be much tougher. 
Mm, indeed. And you've written a couple of books. The, um, the, the first book that, that at least I'm aware of is Psychiatrists in Combat, Mental Health Clinicians' Experiences in the War Zone. And then there is a second book that is due out any minute entitled Gay Mental Health Care Providers and Patients in the Military, Personal Experiences and Clinical Care. So the, the, the research and what you have written about um, really supports um, the fact that we need to do more. We, I, I believe we need to do more as a society that we're not we're not doing enough to help the men and women as, when they return to successfully and holistically reintegrate. So I've actually written many other books, but they all support the same thing that we as a nation need to do more for our returning veterans. I've written a book, for example, on women at war, women specifically, and one on intimacy after injury, combat trauma and sexual Mm. health, talking about the issues for people who have been injured. Uh, Let me say a word about the two you mentioned. One of the things I found is that there's a lot of psychiatrists who have deployed, and what about their stories? And often the general public or other psychiatrists or mental health providers don't think about that. So that book is both to tell the stories of not just psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers and others, and also what are some of the lessons learned from this longest war. When I was growing up and going to psychiatric residency, we had the lessons from World War One, World War Two, and to a certain extent Vietnam. Well, these are different wars, and we need to share those lessons. In terms of the gay clinicians book, uh, many of my colleagues in the military are gay, and they've had sort of extra both uh, challenges before Don't Ask, Don't Tell or during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but also exceptional successes. And again, this is part of those stories, both in terms of the personal experiences of the providers and taking care of gay patients. When we... Talk about um, health care for a service member when he or she returns home. Um, we usually look to the VA to be that provider. And traditionally, the VA has catered to more men than women. And I do know that the VA is really working hard to, to change that, to offer the right kind of services to women as well. Yes, About half of returning service members get care through the VA. Varies a little bit where you are. And an important point is that means half are not. So they're getting care through their civilian providers, maybe through their work or their school. So it's important for all providers to, first of all, ask the question, are you a veteran? Have you served in the military? And then if the person says yes, to understand both the mental and the physical challenges that somebody may return with. And yes, I work for the VA. I don't speak for the VA, but I will say that the VA is working working very hard to keep up with the needs both of this generation and also the older generation because you have the Vietnam veterans from 50 years ago who are now aging and using services and sometimes presenting for post-traumatic stress disorder where they didn't present before. So it is a tremendous challenge, and I would urge folks to get in there and help, especially any civilian providers. You can be a big help by seeing veteran patients, and there's various ways that you can get compensated for that. We are going to need to go to a break, um, and I wanted to give your contact information out to our listeners so they can reach out if the spirit moves them. You can find Dr. Ritchie at Elspeth. CameronRitchie.com. Once again, that's Elspeth, CameronRitchie.com. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. 
Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're engaging in an important conversation about the health and well-being of the men and women who valiantly serve in the United States military. My guest today is retired Colonel Elspeth Cameron Ritchie. Um, Dr. Ritchie works presently as acting chief of staff for mental health and chief of mental health for the community-based outpatient clinics at the Washington VA. She's also an author of several books. The two that we're touching upon today are Psychiatrists in Combat, Mental Health Clinicians' Experiences in the War Zone, and one book that is due out very shortly, Gay Mental Health Care Providers and Patients in the Military, Personal Experiences in Clinical Care. But right now, we're going to focus on women and women's issues um, that are different and from, from their male counterparts. Dr. Ritchie, talk a little bit about the needs of Women warriors. Yes. So when I was in Korea the first time, is out in the field, is when I really wrestled with this. And out, what is this? Well, it comes down. I hate to say it, but often to bathrooms. So out in the field, you may <laughs> have uh, porta potties. They may be serviced not very often. Feces on the on the seat. When you're there, you're in uniform, and you've also got your web belt, which is called your TA-50. You've got your weapon. You've got your gas mask. And so to negotiate all of that and actually sit down on the seat was pretty hard and pretty disgusting. But at least you didn't have bullets flying at you. In our conflicts in Bosnia and Iraq and Afghanistan, if you get out and to urinate by the side of the road, you may get shot or blown up. And unfortunately, what has happened too often is that women tend to fluid restrict, which can lead to urinary tract infections or dehydration, even fainting and falling out. 
So for a while, I've been an advocate of let's figure out how to fix this. And I figure if we can fly drones and if we can, you know, have all the sophisticated equipment, we should be able to figure out how to have a way that a, a woman can urinate safely. That interest has led to an interest in a lot of women's health issues, either while deployed or back at home. And I say back at home because Obviously, women have reproductive tracts, and they're the ones that get pregnant, and uh, then breastfeed. And how can you uh, match that up with the military life? And, well, women are pregnant. They don't deploy. They're exempt from deployment, but they can deploy afterwards. Um, and But they have to get back physically fit. So a couple more examples. If you have a cesarean section and you have to go back and do sit-ups as part of your PT test, how can you navigate mm-hmm. that so the woman's health and still meets the military standards? Or one other example, in basic training, back in 2003, which is, you remember, when we invaded Iraq, uh, we started to put recruits into heavy heavy armor, which by armor I mean, again, your flak jacket, your helmet, and the other things that you need that you wear when you're deployed so that if you're shot, you've got armor. Well, this puts a real stress on the body, and we were seeing a lot of stress fractures, pelvic stress fractures in females. And what we learned is you can't just put them into heavy armor, march them, and not have something break. Now, we've learned that about men some time ago. We used to send them to boot camp and have them wear their boots when they're running, and they had stress fractures there, so we switched to sneakers. So it's not really rocket science to do some of the preventive measures, but you do have to think about it and do what you need to do to make sure that people are hardened, strengthened gradually, and we don't break them in the process. Speaking of women's service members and their additional challenges and the combat experience, how does one work with a woman who might have deployed in, 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 in combat? She returns home, has a family, and is has um, PTSD challenges. So... Both sexes, of course, will have PTSD challenges. Yes, of course. The rate of post-traumatic stress disorder is about 20 to 30% in soldiers who have deployed. What's different is often the circumstances of which they have gotten the trauma, and I'll elaborate on that in a moment, and then the reception when they got home. So classically, women have gotten post-traumatic stress disorder mainly, not completely, from sexual trauma, while men it's been combat trauma. And now we have, and again, this is true of both sexes, you can have both combat trauma and sexual trauma. However, on your return, most people think of the man as a warrior who is deployed and not as a woman. So I occasionally will wear my uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom hat or other hats. I have a ton of army hats at our various bases. And then inevitably people say to me, oh, was your husband in the service? Hmm. No, it was, I was in the service. Another challenge is that many women have small children and unintended pregnancy is another whole issue. But when they come back, it can be a challenge to negotiate where to live for both themselves and their children. And in a lot of cases, they're they're not married or there's been a divorce or there's a caretaker. 
And the VA traditionally helps with housing for single men. It doesn't help with housing traditionally for young women with children. So too many of them end up in not very good housing situation or homeless. So again, to your listeners out there, I'd urge you in whatever community you're in to think about what kind of housing is available. Now, back to post-traumatic stress disorder per se, there are, I talk to patients about treatment, and the treatment I think of is in three buckets. One bucket is medication, one bucket is therapy, and the third bucket is everything else. And everything else includes things like yoga, exercise, working with animals, deep breathing, acupuncture, and people are often are a little reluctant to take medication or they might be a little scared of the therapies, especially ones that focus on the trauma, but they find they can approach things through some of these other methods, or they'll combine them, and that's often the most successful, that you can center yourself enough with yoga and deep breathing that you can tolerate the therapy. So anybody mm-hmm. who has PTSD out there, I'd encourage you to you know read about it. There's a lot of stuff on the web. I've got things on my website and others, but there's a lot of, and so when you go to a provider, you're prepared, and you can also say, well, you know, doc, maybe that's for somebody else, but this is what I think is going to suit me. Not telling the doctor what to do, but working in a partnership. You know, when I think of post-traumatic stress, and I've worked with several veterans through our little nonprofit and then just in private practice, and I I like to share that post-traumatic stress is a very ordinary response to extraordinary stress because I think that the the client will come in and feel ashamed of the symptoms when really it is an expression of our humanity to be affected so deeply. It It is, and that is a very good point. The other thing to think of, though, is that there's a whole range of symptoms and what is the point you should get help, we usually, and by symptoms, let me elaborate, it's usually nightmares, intrusive thoughts, uh, hypervigilance or jumpiness, feelings of problems connecting with those who haven't been there. But then there's the people who have all those and can't get out of the house because they're just too hyper. So at what point do you get help? I usually tell people when it interferes with your work or your home life, and maybe start with um, some education, basic education. But if that doesn't do it for you, then there's a wide range of different avenues. You talked about the VA before, and that's one. Uh, most colleges, jobs have some kind of counseling available. And there's actually organizations that provide treatment for free. One of them is Given Hour, and you can just go to the yeah. website and look that up and get free once-a-week counseling. When somebody is struggling, they often perceive barriers to care, though. And there may be barriers to care anyway, but then if you're ambivalent about help, so it may be helpful to go with a buddy, you know, have somebody help you guide your way into getting treatment. Well, you you touch upon something that I think is very important when you say about go with a buddy, and that is maintaining connection, you know, the social connection, not isolating and separating and recoiling from life. And I think that when that happens, that to me is a telltale sign that, that, that help is really necessary before it becomes a crisis. 
Absolutely. And so there's a lot of organizations out there that have as their mission to help veterans. And, of course, there's veteran service organizations, American Legion, VFW, others. And some people think of those as, you know, being dark bars with a lot of cigarette smokers at 11 in the morning. But most of the VSOs are really reaching out to the younger veteran, trying to promote more healthy things. The American Legion, where I belong to, is a big proponent of getting people involved in baseball, coaching baseball. So that's an easy way of reaching out with people who have been there and done it, gotten the T-shirt. Uh, there, so <laughs> many, many schools are off also starting veterans' organizations because veterans who go back to school are often older than their colleagues, maybe have problems focusing in the classroom. So in, if there's not a veterans' organization at your school, start one. Find out who else are the other veterans there. So absolutely, the importance of social connectedness cannot be uh, overstated. We haven't really and, talked about suicide yet on the program, and we probably won't have much time to do it, but I will say that suicides are most common in folks who have had relationship breakups and are not feeling connected with other people, either in their family, other veterans, or friends. Um, Dr. Ritchie, you're going to have to come back because we've only like scratched the surface of what what we what we want to explore. So I hope I hope you will do so. I want to give our listeners your website address so they can reach out to you directly, and that is www.elspethcameronritchie.com. Once again, Elspeth Cameron Ritchie, and the books that we've been talking about today are Psychiatrists in Combat: Mental Health Clinicians' Experiences in the War Zone, and the new book that is due out shortly, Gay Mental Health Care Providers and Patients in the Military. Personal Experiences, and Clinical Care. My guest today has been retired Colonel Elspeth Cameron Ritchie, who is a doctor. She's a psychiatrist, and you are um, such a wealth of resource, and I hope you'll come back and share more. I'd be delighted to. Thank you very much. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen. My guest today, Dr. Elspeth Cameron Ritchie and Mariette Kalinowski, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. 
Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.